is AMEN, the Alpha Male Entertainment Network. Broadcasting from Humidor 1A in the cigar city of Tampa, Florida, USA. Welcome to the Cigar Dave Show, your weekly excursion into the world of cigars, spirits, and diversions. The cigar and pleasure-friendly hotlines are open. 877-DAVE-007. Now, fire up a cigar and pour yourself a cocktail. It's time for the General, General Cigar, cigar Dave. Dave. It has been quite the tumultuous week. Between the coronavirus fears that are stretching across the globe, the financial markets that melted down, talk about volatility, volatility an understatement. Well, the good news is, as alphas, we shall meet today and we shall congregate and do what we do, and that is Enjoy a cigar, enjoy a libation. We will talk about the current events of the day. We'll talk about coronavirus. I want to talk about President Trump, what he had to say about China's President Xi. My good friend, President Xi of China. We'll talk about that. And in our bottom of the hour, we've got a very special guest, Tom Golisano, founder of Paychex, formerly uh, owned the Buffalo Sabres, philanthropist, with a new book that just came out, Built Not Born, A Self-Made Billionaire's No-Nonsense Guide for Entrepreneurs. I had the chance to speak with Tom earlier this week at length. Fascinating, great book. It's an easy read. It's not one of these books that you're going to read in, you know, in five minutes. Your, your, eyebrow, your eyes are going to start drooping. Very conversational, uh, very interesting book. Light, bright, and tight, just exactly the way I like it. Had a great conversation. And those of you that are fellow alphas, that are entrepreneurs, business people, professionals, you will find what Tom had to say quite interesting. We have a, had a great conversation. As always, I extend to you my Long Ash Leap Day greetings and salutations, a Long Ash snappy salute, semper delictatio, always pleasure, even in the midst of quite the crazy week. Make America great again. Make masculinity great again. Keep America great. Screw the enemies of pleasure. Screw the nanny state. As always, it is your global five-star general and alpha male-in-chief from Command Center Alpha. Now we're going to do something a little bit different because we're going to get to Tom Galasano at the bottom of the hour. Long conversation with him that I know you will enjoy, and I do want to get to what President Trump had to say in the coronavirus and some very important things that we as Americans need to be straight up about regarding China. So before we do that, let's change the pace a little bit, shall we? And let's conduct the national. With an unlimited and secure supply of pleasure sticks available for the general to enjoy, it's time for National Cigar Litation Maneuvers. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. And the reason I'm doing my Johnny Cash impression and playing Johnny Cash, Ring of Fire... Is because my cigar today has Johnny Cash roots. It is the Jericho Hill. It is part of the February Crowned Heads full-flavored sampler. Full-flavored selection of their great cigars, the La Imperiosa, 
Juarez, and Jericho Hill. Dedicated to the man in black. Hello, my name is Johnny Cash. Jericho Hill traces its name to one of his great songs, Cocaine Blues. From his renowned concert at Folsom Prison, the ballad of a scorned man named Willie Lee, whose drug-induced rage got him arrested by a sheriff from Jericho Hill. And Crown Heads uses music as a lot of their inspiration for their cigars. Great cigar, square-pressed, beautiful stick, the first Nicaraguan cigar from Crown Heads. Beautiful, dark, deep, chocolatey, Mexican San Andreas Maron or Maduro wrapper. Nicaraguan binders and fillers, medium to full-flavored attitude. It is a delicious cigar. It is just it, feeling it in my hand. This uh, beautiful Robusto size just has a nice solid feel to it. Oily wrapper, five inches in length, 56 ring gauge, which is 56 64ths of an inch. But it doesn't feel that big because, again, it is square pressed. That is the cigar that I will enjoy today. From the February 2020 Officers Club selection, the Crown Heads full-flavored sampler. Cigar-altering and highly sharpened leaf-exposing device. Oh, yes, my self-sharpening double-edged stainless steel guillotine ready for action. Maximum BTU flame-throwing and heat-producing apparatus. You can hear the four jet flames coming off of my Cigar Dave breakout from the Cigar Dave Labs. Last week was the first time I had a cigar in six weeks after having an upper respiratory infection, bronchitis. So the R&D laboratory guys said, we've got a new lighter for you, General. It's called the Breakout because you're breaking it out for the first time in six weeks. Nice big tank. Listen to those flames. That's what I would use to damn my Jericho Hill. My cigar. cigar pre-lightation checklist complete. No faults detected. Area clear of all enemies of pleasure. Approval to go throttle up in three, two, one. And a perfect seg to Johnny's next song. I hear the train a-coming, it's rolling around the bend. And I ain't seen the sunshine since, I don't know when. I'm stuck in folds of prison. That's right, puff and rotate. Doing my Johnny Cash impression. Mmm, this is delicious. Josh, delicious. Medium to full flavored attitude. Nice chocolate notes, espresso. Mm. My buddies Mike Condor, John Hubert, Crownheads have done a magnificent job on their lineup. True artisanal cigars. The other two cigars that were in the Officers Club selection, the Lamperiosa, a nice full-flavored beauty, Ecuadorian Habano Oscuro wrapper, very peppery, and then a cigar inspired by Jericho Hill, the Juarez. Amps up the strength, delivers notes of spice and sweetness, but this Jericho Hill, magnificent, and that's what I will enjoy today. Now I need something to accompany it. Scotch, bourbon, and beer. Commence thirst-quenching libationary maneuvers. I'm opening up a 32-ounce Crowler fill from Dunedin Brewery. Mike Bryan and his great team, we have had him on many, many times, a beautiful boutique brewery over in Dunedin, near Clearwater, right across the Cigar City, right across Tampa Bay. And I need something that's going to accompany this nice chocolatey espresso-type Jericho Hill. So I have pulled out from Dunedin Brewing their... Beach Tail Brown Ale. 
5.8% alcohol by volume, notes of roasted chocolate, caramel. As I look at this, got a deep, dark color to it. I will say cheers, take a sip. Mm. Take a puff of my Jericho Hill. Take a sip of my Dineen Brewing Beach Tail Brown Ale, and I am ready to go. Fantastic. Wherever you are, make sure your cigar is lit. You've got your libation at hand, because now I'm going to get into some serious conversational maneuvers. I want to talk about <clears throat> coronavirus. I want to talk about China. I want to talk about the United States' dependency on China. I want to talk about what President Trump said during his press conference on Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Let's talk about, first of all, China. I believe nothing, nothing, not a lick that is being released by the Chinese commie government. Not a thing. I don't believe them in terms of the number of cases. I do not believe them in terms of the number of deaths. To this day, they have not allowed the World Health Organization or the Centers for Disease Control, which both asked to come in and assist with containing the virus and assist the Chinese, they have both been rejected to enter China. Why is that? And why did China kick out three Wall Street Journal reporters who were on the hunt talking about coronavirus. Why? Very simple. Because the Chinese Communist government has done everything in their power to suppress the truth about coronavirus, to suppress that it even existed, to suppress the facts, and in, in fact they have endangered the global health of the really just global health of people worldwide. They have not only endangered global health, they have endangered global economies, global transportation. There's a reason the stock market, it was getting toppy the last few weeks, make no mistake. And we may have seen a couple of percent correction coming down, but no way would we have seen the dramatic 10, 12% absolute rolling crash that we saw earlier, or actually throughout the course of the last five days. This is all because the Chinese Communist government, the Chinese Communist leadership, refused to acknowledge the truth. Communism will kill you one way or another, and this is one of those ways. In December, an ophthalmologist in China made the discovery of coronavirus, saw something was unusual. In a posting to several other doctors, I think eight or ten doctors, he mentioned this. Mentioned that, that what he discovered. It soon started to spread, started to leak out. And instead of the Chinese government contacting him saying, doctor, tell us what you see. If there is something, we need to contain this. We need to know what is going on. Instead of doing that, the commie bastard party officials called him in, dressed him down, and made him sign a statement saying that he was being a little bit on the dramatic side, that he was, he was exaggerating what went on and there's really nothing to worry about. Everyone else knew the truth. This was in December. This could have been stopped in December. There's no way... China now is sequestering, is quarantining an area the size of France, 
Actually, the area the size of Florida, the population of France, I think 60 or 70 million people, if they knew damn well that this wasn't as bad as it, as it is. So the Chinese government, the Chinese commie pinko bastard, starting from President Xi of China and all the other commie bastard officials, knew what was going on and danger. I don't, frankly, I don't care if Chinese people are endangered. I don't care about China. I care about the United States. China is our enemy. Now, I don't wish evil or harm on any of the Chinese people, with the exception of all the Chinese commie pinko bastards. I hope every China Chinese Communist Party official not only gets coronavirus, but expires from coronavirus. And I know some of you are saying, General, you're, 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 you're wishing ill on people. You're damn right. The Chinese Communists endangered every person in the world with this. They have been suppressing their people for years and years. I don't care about the Chinese Communist Party officials. I don't care about President Xi. I don't care if they all drop dead tomorrow from coronavirus. In fact, I hope they do. The Chinese people are different. They're being suppressed by these bastards. But China, the Communist Party officials, knew what was going on and refused to acknowledge what was going on and endangered the entire world. Now let's go to President Trump on Wednesday. He was asked about China. And President Trump, who as you know, I'm a huge supporter, make America great again, keep America great. I will absolutely vote for him in November. But the one complaint I have is that at times President Trump gets too optimistic, too buddy-buddy, whether it's with, it's with Xi or Putin or, or Kim Jong-un, whoever. What he should have said when asked about it, he should have said, I'm going to be very clear. I do have an excellent relationship with President Xi of China. But President Xi and the Chinese government, the communist government, has endangered the entire world. They knew about this in December, and they suppressed it. They've known this has been a major health issue. They're not prepared to deal with this properly. They have refused to let in the World Health Organization. They have refused to let in the Centers for Disease Control. They have refused to let in medical professionals, disease professionals, that are fully cognizant on how to contain and how to research and how to watch these things. They have been negligent in allowing them in. They are responsible for allowing this to spread because they have tried to keep it quiet. And I don't believe, frankly, and this is what the president should have said, frankly, I don't believe the numbers that are coming out of China. I believe the numbers are far greater. And I'm very perturbed at China. In fact, I spoke with President Xi and let him, in no uncertain terms, he needs to let in the World Health Organization and CDC. That's what he should have said. Instead of, well, I believe he's doing a great job. No, he's not. President Xi is not doing a great job. President Xi and the entire Chinese communist apparatus has endangered the entire world. They've endangered China, and they've endangered the entire world's population because we're seeing it all over the globe. And now we're seeing it spread to the economy. And wouldn't it be something if the Chinese communist government falls because they refuse to acknowledge the disease early on in December, and their economy comes to an absolute standstill, and people in China are fed up and overthrow the Chinese Communist government. Wouldn't that be wonderful to see? Screw these Chinese commie bastards. I hate them. I despise them. I hate all communists. 
And I hate these communists that suppress their people and suppress the truth about coronavirus or any other disease, whether it was SARS or anything else, that can endanger the rest of the world. Now, here are some facts that are very important. We have an unbelievable dependence on China. How our American companies have abdicated their responsibility and sent the entire supply chain to China, not only of computer parts and all the other crap that China makes, but more importantly, our pharmaceutical industry. 3M, which makes the post-it sticky notes that I have, but they are also one of the largest manufacturers of surgical masks and protective masks and painter's masks. Their plant is in China. Do you know who's commandeered all the production from that plant of the masks? The Chinese commie bastards. We have abdicated. This country, the CEOs, the government, has abdicated our economy and, and essential medical drugs and other devices to China. They are our enemy. They could easily say, we're not going to be uh, giving you any more medical supplies. Here's some startling facts that you should know about. 95% of U.S. imports of ibuprofen, Advil, made in China. 91% of hydrocortisone imports, China. 70% of acetaminophen, Tylenol, China. 40 to 45% of penicillin comes from China. 40% of heparin. A blood thinner comes from China. And by the way, with the blood thinner, they were uh, uh, back in 2008, they had tainted blood thinner in China. In 2016, they discovered more was tainted, killed umpteen people. And in 2018, the FDA issued a recall of a blood pressure medication made in China, Valsartan, after it was found to contain dangerous carcinogens. China is dominating the manufacturing of, 80, of raw materials of pharmaceutical products. 80% of all the raw materials for pharmaceutical products made in, you guessed it, China. You control the supply of medicine. You control the world. China can set the price. And every other country has no choice. I didn't realize this. That even pharmaceuticals for our animals, our beloved pets. 32 animal drug firms that make finished drugs or source active pharmaceutical ingredients in China. There are now uh, six or eight of those drug firms saying they're having supply chain issues. We are at the behest. We are under the, the, the boot of China. Tamiflu, one of the most popular anti-influenza medications in the U.S., it's, a, it's extracted from the star anise plant. It is a plant primarily grown and harvested in southwest China. Guess who makes that? China. That is correct. China, China, China. This is ridiculous. 80% of the raw materials for medications come from China. Oh, and here's another little thing. In terms of the FDA inspecting Chinese pharmaceutical companies, good luck on that. I just recently read an article that talked about how the FDA 
has a very limited number of inspections that go on. So we don't know if many of these medications are even safe. Now you tell me, why can't we make raw materials here in the United States? Because it's more expensive? So be it. This is a national security issue. And this should be a wake-up call for President Trump, for the House, the Senate, for every government official, for the FDA, for the uh, CDC, for HHS. This is not a political issue. Unfortunately, the, the Dems are trying to make it a political issue. How pathetic. Something like this is being turned into a political issue. This should be the type of thing where Pelosi and, and Schumer say, Mr. President, we're going to put politics aside. We're going to come and meet. we got to be on the same team with this. They could care less. They don't care about your health or not, the Democrats. They could care less. But this is a huge problem. Medical devices. 63 manufacturers. 72 facilities that produce essential medical devices. The FDA just came out, uh, what was this, uh, two days ago, saying essential devices may be prone to potential shortage if there's a supply disruption. Why do we not make all these devices and the pharmaceutical products in the United States? Enough is enough. Bottom line, China has threatened the world. They didn't have to do it with a gun, didn't have to do it with a bomb. They did it by hiding the truth about a virus. They endangered their own people, and more importantly, they endangered the rest of the world. President Trump should have come out and said, I'm not happy with China, and I'm not happy with President Xi, and I'm telling you right now, he's got to open things up because I don't believe one word he says. He didn't do that, and I've got a fault with that, a huge fault with that. Enough of the dependence on China. I'm fed up with those Chinese commie bastards. We can't make that nonsense, all that, 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 those, that pharmaceutical products here. Please. This should be an issue of national concern and national security. And every president, every CEO that's just basically taken all their equipment over to China should be ashamed of themselves. Screw the Chinese commie bastards. Enough is enough. All right. Next, uh, when we come back from the break, Tom Golisano, founder of Paychex, billionaire, author of the book Built Not Born, will join us. Great conversation. Screw China. They're rotten bastards. The General is always on Twitter, delivering breaking news, giving you the latest intel on cigars, and battling the enemies of pleasure. Chat with The General now at Cigar Dave Show. In 1964, Jose O. Padron began rolling cigars bearing his name in modest surroundings with one guiding principle, always focus on quality, never on quantity. Nearly 40 years later, Padron cigars are recognized for their superior taste and majestic construction. The result of Padron controlling all aspects of the cigar making process, including planting their own seeds, growing and curing their own tobacco, and constantly supervising the rolling room. To Wall Street, it is called vertical integration. To the Padron family, it's called making great cigars. The Padron lines include the Padron 1964 Anniversary Series and the Padron Traditional line. All Padron cigars are wrapped in Nicaraguan sun-grown Habano tobacco, available in natural or maduro. Experience Padron. For your Padron retailer, call 1-800-453-5635. When Padron is on the band, 
quality is a matter of family honor. Surgeon General Warning. Tobacco use increases the risk of infertility, stillbirth, and low birth weight. As those of you know, I'm a big sports fan, being from Buffalo, Western New York, big Buffalo Sabres fan, Buffalo Bills fan. And while the Buffalo Sabres are having their 50th anniversary season, last week they honored one of the owners who came in at a crucial time for the Buffalo Sabres. They were in bankruptcy. Our special guest today came in, bought the Buffalo Sabres, turned them around, made the Stanley Cup Finals a success story, not only owning the Buffalo Sabres, but for his other business ventures, including founding Paychecks, which today does revenue in excess of $3 billion, started it in Rochester, New York. Now he's a noted philanthropist and a new author. Great book, picked up, couldn't put it down, finished it in two nights. Built Not Born, a self-made billionaire's no-nonsense guide for entrepreneurs. My pleasure to welcome Tom Golisano today to The Cigar Dave Show. I was reading a Buffalo News article before our guest Tom Golisano, who also founded Paychecks, was heading over to the arena to be honored. He went over to the Buffalo Club and had a cigar, and I have found out that he is a huge cigar connoisseur. Not only successful, one of us enjoys great cigars, so it is my pleasure to welcome Tom Golisano to the Cigar Dave Show. Tom, great to have you with us. Nice to be here with you this morning. And uh, let me ask you, I know that our mutual friend Larry Quinn said you are a huge cigar connoisseur. On page four of the book, you reference cigars, which we will get to. But talk about how you got into cigars and what cigars you enjoy. Well, I was a cigarette smoker for a number of years, uh, uh, starting out when I was about 20. But in mid-40s, I gave them up. But a few years ago, I was uh, on a vacation with a family, and we happened to be in a place in the Bahamas uh, celebrating New Year's. And... Uh, my sister was in a gift shop, so I went in behind her, and I saw some cigars, and I knew my nephew was with me and my grandson, so I grabbed a few, and I said, I think I'll try one of these. Well, that was about five or six years ago, and I don't know if I'm an aficionado yet, but at least I am a cigar smoker. I enjoy them. I, I do specialize in Padrones, uh, uh, the anniversary series. Great enjoy cigars. Great cigars. Yep. In fact, uh, the Padron family, our uh, uh, Jose uh, O. Padron, who founded Padron, was just a great gentleman, and his two sons, uh, uh, George and Orlando, continue on their legacy and very much into quality. So fantastic cigars. You cannot go wrong. And actually, where you also have a home down in Naples, the Rocky Patel Cigar Lounge. Burn is right down there, another great place to get cigars. I don't know if you've ever been there or not. Yes, I have been there. It's quite a location. Nice space. Yep. Absolutely. Next time I'm in Naples, we'll absolutely have to get together and uh, and have a cigar. I want to talk about your your book, Built Not Born. Uh, incredible book. It's a self-made billionaire's no-nonsense guide for entrepreneurs. Tom, the one thing I loved about this book, it was an easy read. It was a conversational read. I didn't feel like I had to trudge through. I read this book in two nights, and it was I just I couldn't put it down. Just very interesting. And the first thing that I noticed right off the bat which I think told me a lot about you, 
in the acknowledgments, the dedication section, you listed every one of your original paycheck uh, paychecks partners and franchisees, which I thought was quite interesting. Well, they were a very integral part of the growth of the company. Uh, all of them except one lived in Rochester, New York, and uh, moved to various parts of the country to start a similar paychecks office. Um, so they deserve a tremendous amount of credit. They're the ones that make it made it happen. Well, I want to talk about your, before we get into paychecks, talk about your background. You grew up in Rochester, and you did not have an easy uh, childhood. You really had to work, and you had, uh, I was really impressed by the fact that you were so candid and honest in your book. You had a tough time growing up. You had to really uh, help, uh, you know, provide uh, for your family. Yes, my mom and dad had to go through bankruptcy when I was a teenager uh, in high school, and it was a real tough time. And you know, when somebody comes to get the car and gets the car, it's, it's a real wake-up call. And then they were also threatening to take the house. Fortunately, my mother's hard work and my father's determination, we made our way through it and were able to regain ourselves. But it was a very tough experience, you know, for a teenage boy living in a suburban neighborhood like that. But we got through it, and it taught me some very important lessons. And the most important lesson was I wanted to always be sure that I don't get myself in that position. Because you know, what you, it you, can do to a family and what it can do to your psyche is just overwhelming. You know, in your book, uh, which I found was interesting, you, you talk about the fact that there's people think if you go work for a company, then you've got a guaranteed job and everything is cushy. And that's not the case anymore. Uh, certainly not. Uh, the cradle-to-grave mentality, cradle-to-grave security mentality, just doesn't exist today. And right in Rochester, New York, it, there's such an excellent example. Eastman Kodak Company was known for cradle-to-grave security for employees. Well, in 1960, uh, 1982, they had about 62,000 employees in Rochester. Today, they have less than 3,000. That's what's happened to that organization, uh, regrettably. But... People that worked there could not uh, count on the fact that they were going to be financially secure. So it can be very risky working for a company. You know, you could do really well as an employee, but if your department doesn't do well, or if your department does well, but the division doesn't do well, or, and so on, and the company gets sold out from under you or closes for some reason, you really in, uh, could be in a difficult position. Owning a business has some real benefits when it comes to uh, the fact that eventually you may be able to sell your business. You can't sell a job. And secondly, you may want to pass on your business to an heir, a son or a daughter, or whoever. Uh, that's one of the real advantages of being having your own business, being an entrepreneur. And in a way, it almost seems less risky than working for a large company. Tom Galassano, author of the book Built Not Born, a self-made billionaire's no-nonsense guide for entrepreneurs, the founder of Paychecks, and in addition to being a successful entrepreneur, a business person, also a major philanthropist, which we will get to uh, in a bit. Tom, you before you started Paychecks, before you were in the payroll processing business, you worked for another company, but you had some other businesses. Uh, you were always the entrepreneur type. You had some other businesses that you had founded, one kind of in media company called Bitter's Guide. I was a salesperson for Burroughs Corporation, which back in those days sold accounting machines for accounting applications, similar to what PCs do today. 
And one of my prospects was a village outside of Rochester, and they wanted a machine to do water billing for their residents in their community. So I made a presentation. Uh, the, the town clerk and the town board members seemed to like my presentation. I was pretty confident I was going to get the deal. I was telling my branch manager about it. My branch manager says, well, make sure they advertise their bid notice in the local newspaper, not the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle. So I said, what's that all about? He says, well, if they advertise in a local newspaper that's very uh, unfrequently read, uh, better chance the competition won't see it. So I went home that night and started thinking about all the products municipalities and school districts purchase and uh, uh, how many newspapers there were in upstate New York. If I subscribed to them all, added up or cut out all the bid advertisements, put them into a publication three times a week that I would put out, it's simply by mimeograph, uh, I might have a product that companies would buy. So I decided to leave Burroughs and start a company called Bidder's Guide. Now that was in 1964, I believe. I was at a public forum about a year ago, and uh, two young men walked up to me and said, uh, Tom, uh, we own Bidder's Guide, which was the name of the company. I was astonished. I didn't know it was still in existence. And basically, uh, these gentlemen bought it. Uh, it's a little different in its presentation today using the Internet instead of mimeograph, but it's still going and obviously still has value. I sold Bitter's Guide to start paychecks. Interesting. And and they have adopted to the change of, in times and change in technology and still around 55, 56 years later, which really uh, is incredible. Entrepreneur, sports team owner, philanthropist. That is Tom Golisano and now noted book author, a best-selling book just released, Built Not Born, A Self-Made Billionaire's No-Nonsense Guide for Entrepreneurs. We will continue our fascinating conversation with Tom around the corner. You, you need to add some alpha to your Facebook news feed. By following The General, you'll get the latest intel in the world of cigars. Info on the show each week and see what The General is smoking. Click like at Facebook.com slash Cigar Dave. America is under attack. Basic freedoms, privileges, and acts that we would normally take for granted are disappearing each day, including the simple ability to enjoy a cigar. This is Glenn Loop, Executive Director of Cigar Rights of America, CRA. At a time when elected officials should be thinking about education, public safety, and creating jobs, they are actually thinking about smoking bans, new taxes, and regulations of historic proportions on premium cigars. The cigars that provide us with pleasure, relaxation, and fellowship are under attack. We have to stop it. That's why Cigar Rights of America was created, to work for a new political day for cigar enthusiasts across America, to roll back restrictive laws and defeat onerous taxes and regulations that impact everyone from your local cigar shop to your personal humidor. For the price of a few great cigars, be a part of this effort to protect your right to enjoy a cigar without excessive taxation and cumbersome legislation. Go to CigarRights.org. Let's tell the government we've had enough. Join now, CigarRights.org. The Cigar Dave Officers Club has been en fuego on fire with marvelous selections, and we continue that trend for February. We feature a full-flavored selection of Crowned Head's unique 
artisanal quality cigars. First up, the Jericho Hill, dedicated to the man in black. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. Jericho Hill, the first Nicaraguan cigar from Crown Heads. It's wrapped in a Mexican San Andrean Maduro wrapper. Rich, dark, delivers medium to full-flavored attitude. Then, we feature the La Imperiosa. Buckle up. It's a seriously full-flavored beauty. Ecuadorian Habano Oscuro wrapper ignites massive notes of pepper. And then we wrap it up with Juarez, inspired by Jericho Hill. But Juarez amps up the strength, delivering notes of spice and sweetness. $22.95 per month. You get three great cigars like the Crown Heads full-flavored sampler. Go to CigarDave.com, click on Officers Club, and join the Officers Club today. Special guest today on the Cigar Dave Show, Tom Golisano, founded Paychex, noted philanthropist, owned the Buffalo Sabres of the National Hockey League for eight years, and I picked up his brand new book, Built Not Born, a self-made billionaire's no-nonsense guide for entrepreneurs, just released, couldn't put it down. Before you did start Paychex, you worked for a, you were a salesman for EAS, Electronic Accounting System which was a competitor to ADP, Automatic Data Processing, which still is around today. And what I found interesting is they both went after the same market, the larger type accounts. But tell us the story how you went to the library and did some research, and really that was the seed to found Paychex. Uh, being in sales, and they eventually made me sales manager, you know, driving down Main Street anywhere in the United States, you look at businesses and you got to say, gee, most of them have less than 100 employees. Well, the companies doing payroll processing back then were specializing in that market. The larger the employer, as far as number of employees goes, the more they sought after or tried to get that business. I just got to wondering, uh, you know, how big is this small employee uh, business market? And I went to the library and found out 95% of all businesses in America have less than 50 employees, and 98% have less than 100 employees. Well, all the payroll processors in those days uh, were completely ignoring that market. Now, probably the rationale was the higher the dollar volume and revenue, the more preferable the client. But there's also the other aspect of that, and that's profit, profitability. Uh, one thing that payroll processors do is they, when they price their product, the higher the number of employees or units produced, the lower the unit revenue. Conversely, the smaller the number of employees, the higher the revenue per employee. So with that logic, I said, would it be better to sell 10 10-person payrolls or one 100-person payroll? Well, the fact of the matter is the 10 10s represent two and a half times the revenue. I can tell you as a payroll processor that the overhead to produce 10 10 payrolls, 10 10-person payrolls, is not two and a half times. So they're much more profitable. The other thing that's unique is I think it's easier to sell 1010s rather than 1100 because all the payroll processors are going after that 100-person payroll while everybody is ignoring the, the lower end of the marketplace. Now, so we had to do up, a couple things. Right. When you had your payroll process back in those days, you had to fill out a fairly complex computer input sheet which you had to learn how to do. 
then it had to be delivered to the payroll processor, either by courier or by mail. Our concept was instead of having the customer fill out a fairly complicated input sheet, why not just have them call us on the phone? A typical 14-person payroll, which is our average size client even today, only takes about two minutes, two to three minutes to call in. And the benefit is generally higher accuracy because the person communicating to us from the company is dealing with a professional that knows how to make the exact answer happen through our computer process. Secondly, and this was very big, none of the payroll processors back in those days were doing payroll tax returns as part of the service. For example, if you are an employer in the state of New York, you have a minimum of 52 payroll tax returns and payments that must be made to the federal and state governments. And the fines and penalties for not doing it uh, properly and on time are severe. So we decided we would make payroll tax returns as part of the service. And the third thing, let's price it so small companies could afford it. Minimum, high minimum charges back in those days from the larger processors was just too much money to uh, allow small companies to want to take advantage of that service. So that was it. I went to the management of the company. I said, look, it, let's start a division. I'd be glad to run it. And they said, no, we don't think accountants would like us doing payroll tax returns. So I said, well, I disagree with you. And I took it back to them a couple months later, and they still were against the idea. The following Monday, I resigned and started Paychex. Now tell us when you did uh, found Paychex, how much did you found it with? And you had some struggles along the way because when you're starting things out, it's not like you have a giant line of credit and we know that banks don't like to necessarily lend to entrepreneurs or new businesses. Absolutely, you are correct. I, I paid off all my debts when I sold Bitter's Guide and I had $3,000 left and a couple of credit cards, uh, which I quickly lost because I was able unable to stay with the payment schedules and the the credit card companies uh, retracted them. Uh, went four years without getting my own paycheck. Fortunately, uh, my wife at the time, Gloria, uh, worked in a nonprofit organization, and we were able to sustain ourselves. But for four years, I can remember going home some days and looking in that refrigerator, and there's nothing in there. It was tough, but we made it through it, and it obviously all turned out to be worth it. You know, whenever people say, oh, the uh, person's an overnight success, I always say, yeah, about uh, six years worth of overnights. And that's really yeah. true in your case as well, because four years without a paycheck is, that's pretty tough. I mean, that is that is very difficult. One of the things that you bring up in the book, which I found was was very interesting, is talking about are you cut out to be an entrepreneur? Because everybody thinks it's so easy to start a business. Everybody thinks... No problem. And again, your story is a perfect example. You went four years without drawing a paycheck. A lot of, I guarantee you, sleepless nights, a lot of stress, a lot of pressure. But there is a certain type that says, I am willing to roll the dice. And I always say, no guts, no glory. You roll the dice, you're willing. But you brought up something in the book which really resonated with me, where you said when you go out to, let's say, a restaurant, your brain works as an entrepreneur that you don't look and say, yeah, the food is great. You look and say, man, the place is busy. How many seats are in this restaurant? How many times can they turn it? What do you think the average food cost is? And you mentally go through an exercise figuring out what the business is doing and what kind of margins and profits and revenue it's doing. And I do the exact same thing almost everywhere. 
And I think that is a common trait with entrepreneurs. We're always looking at the business angle of it. Guilty as charged. Uh, I still do it. I, I enjoy it. I think I uh, learn a lot by going through the exercise all the time. And even if you get a chance to, even at a later time, talk to some of these entrepreneurs that you've analyzed from afar, it's really interesting stuff. And uh, I think any person that wants to be an entrepreneur and has a desire, uh, it's a good way to go through thought processes as they go from one business to another, you know, as, as consumers, for example. On page four, perfect example of this. You were in Cuba recently on vacation. You visited a cigar factory. Your first instinct was to ask questions. Where did they source their materials? What was their output? How many workers did they have? What did those workers get paid? You, you went through the entrepreneur's mental checklist. You started looking <laughs> at the business aspect of it while you're enjoying a great cigar. Well, they weren't giving me all the answers. They were sort of protective to a point, but I didn't learn an awful lot. And it was a fun experience. Well, if you ever want to go to Nicaragua, the Dominican Republic, we can get you all the answers you want uh, with our contacts, all the great uh, cigar manufacturers, and see exactly how it goes from seed to cigar uh, down the road. Tom Golisano, the founder of Paychex, entrepreneur, philanthropist, author as well, Built Not Born, new book that is doing very well on, uh, on a number of bestsellers lists, A Self-Made Billionaire's No-Nonsense Guide for Entrepreneurs. Now, I, you know, I was amazed at just the level of honesty that you revealed in this book. Uh, and I, I really, chapter eight really kind of hit me, a good deal for everyone. And it brought me to my grandfather growing up in Buffalo, who was in the wallpaper and paint business. And even as a little kid, and he loves cigars, I'd always go around with him in his truck and, and be just, just love being around the aroma of cigars and, and him. And I remember as a kid, I remember he did a deal with a bank and we went in and he signed a loan to buy a property. And I'll never forget. He looked and said, Always leave enough on the table for everybody to make it look like they had a good deal. Let everybody eat. That was his. That was his. His, uh, his the phrase that he used. And you did that. You said the exact same thing in your book. Uh, yes, I did, and I'm a big believer in that in that concept, that philosophy. Uh, when you're in a negotiation with you know a vendor or a potential acquired company or something of that sort, somebody buying your company. It's a much better world if you, as uh, part of the process and, and the person on the other side of the table, understand that it has to be or should be a good deal for everyone. Or if it's a bad deal, that it's shared equally among the two parties. Uh, the idea that you can ramrod yourself and, and overwhelm the other party and take advantage of them, I think, is really a lot of baloney. Uh, most people are, that are in the position to negotiate something like that are pretty pretty smart individuals, and they've been through a lot. And if you think you can take advantage of them, I think you're you're making a big mistake. So if you want to accomplish something, the best thing to do is make it a good deal for both of you, if you can do that. Or if it's got to be a bad deal for whatever circumstances, at least let share in it equally. I think you get a lot further ahead. You make. Uh, friends and build relationships over time that are valuable if you have that mentality rather than the other screw the guy per, uh, mentality it's just better business and it pays off in the long run we continue our fascinating interesting conversation with one of the noted entrepreneurs in the united states founded paychecks also in the buffalo sabers noted philanthropist and now 
has his new book out entitled Built Not Born, a self-made billionaire's no-nonsense guide for entrepreneurs. We will continue our fascinating conversation with Tom around the corner. This is AMEM, the Alpha Male Entertainment Network. From Humidor 1A in the cigar city of Tampa, Florida, USA. Welcome to the Cigar Dave Show, your weekly excursion into the world of cigars, spirits, and diversions. The cigar and pleasure friendly hotlines are open. 877 Dave007. Now, fire up a cigar and pour yourself a cocktail. It's time. For the General, General Cigar, Cigar Day. Well, I'm enjoying my Jericho Hill, part of the February Officers Club selection. Beautiful cigar, nice espresso chocolatey notes, and I am thoroughly enjoying my Dunedin Brewing Beach Tail Brown Ale, a perfect accompaniment to this Jericho Hill. And I'm pleased to say that after my opening monologue last hour, my blood pressure has gone from 950 over 820, down to a steady 120 over 80. All is well now. Getting just absolutely exasperated with China, our dependence on China. And if you missed what I had to say in the opening monologue, by all means, make sure you listen to our archive at CigarDave.com or on the podcast or on our mobile app. It automatically loops. You won't want to miss it. I was quite perturbed and fired up. Tom, when you started Paychex, initially you founded it just to be a local Rochester company. Uh, That was in the book. It was very apparent that you were just looking to make a nice business in Rochester. And I think when you look at many entrepreneurs that have become successful and ultimately billionaires, you look at Steve Jobs at Apple or Bill Gates at Microsoft, most of them said, hey, we've got this idea. Maybe we can make some money. Maybe we'll change the world a little bit, but we'll pay our bills, we'll make some money, and uh, life will be good. We'll, we'll have some freedom. So when you founded Paychex, you initially were just looking at a relatively small universe of Rochester. You're exactly right, Dave. My goal was to get 300 clients in Rochester, New York, and live happily ever after. It took me about four years to accomplish that. But one day, uh, a friend of mine walked into the office and we had worked together at Burroughs, and he said to me, Tom, it looks like you're making it with this thing. He says, how could I get involved? I said, Phil, uh, well, we could open an office in Buffalo or Syracuse or Albany or all three, and you and I could go partners. And Phil said, sounds like a good idea, and we did that. About a few months after we got him started, a client, an employee of a client came into the office to pick up his payroll, saw me and he says, Tom, this is really a great service. He says, you know, I would like to move to some other part of the country and start a similar business. And I said to him, Chuck, I said, where are you interested in going? He says, well, Miami, Florida. I said, Chuck, uh, I don't know. You want to be my partner? And he said, no, I don't want to be your partner, but I'll be your franchisee. So I said, you mean you'll pay me an upfront fee and maybe some uh, recurring revenue uh, percentage and that type of thing? And he said, sure. So we got together, we came up with a franchise agreement between the two of us, and off Chuck went to Miami, Florida. 
Uh, we got the lawyers involved in that franchise agreement uh, after two or three hours of trying to settle what I call inconsequential issues, but they're trying to make a big deal out of it. Chuck and I said to the lawyers, we're going to leave the room. We'll come back with the deal. We came back with the deal and said, don't screw it up, guys. Just do the paperwork right. So it's a little story about paying people by the hour. But anyway, I got these people, uh, these two guys going, and they did good jobs. So then I decided, is this a way to build a national organization by offering partnerships and franchises? I decided, yes. So the next four years, I spent recruiting people. As I said, most of them were all from Rochester. And getting them started as a franchisee or as a partner in Paychex in another part of the country. Ended up with 17 of them, including my wife, my first wife. We decided to go our separate ways. And that's an interesting story. That's a fascinating story. And uh, at the time, I didn't have very much liquidity. And when I asked her what she might like in the form of a settlement, she says, well, you haven't sold the New York City franchise. Why don't you give me that? Fund me till I get to break even, help me buy a house, and we'll call it square if you do that. And I waited a week. I wanted to talk to her again to make sure she really wanted to do it. She obviously wanted to do it. So I said, okay, and we did it. And she went down to New Jersey, had the New York City market, did a terrific job, was a great salesperson, a little scared of the computer room, but a great salesperson. And consequently, when we consolidated into one company, she ended up being one of the larger shareholders of the company. And that's interesting because you jumped ahead, but that's great. You I, Again, talking about how candid you were in this book really was fascinating. You have a section called Divorce the Ultimate Negotiation. And many people would shy away from saying how many times they were divorced, what their deals were. You were very honest, Tom. You said you've been divorced three times, and your good deal for everyone philosophy extends to your personal life. And you said that on both of your divorces, or two of the three, you paid both sides of the legal fees. For the third, you paid your side. But what was fascinating is the total amount that you paid for all three divorces, which is unheard of, which lawyers listening today are going to be not very thrilled with, a total of $6,000. And you say, why? Because you sat down with everyone and said, I'm going to work out a reasonable settlement. We're not going to let the lawyers chew this up. If more people would follow your advice, we could put more lawyers out of business. Well, I, I believe you're right. Uh, you know, we settled it at the kitchen table between the two of us. And because we came to an agreement without outside, uh, let me call it meddling, uh, you know, too often the, the partners, they talk to their family members, their friends, and they give them all kinds of uh, what I consider to be bad ideas about negotiating. So the fact that we did it ourselves, we did it right at the kitchen table, we told the, go- gov- or the lawyers not to mess up the paperwork, and we saved a tremendous amount of money, but the most important thing is we saved a tremendous amount of grief. You know, and it's amazing. Up, uh, you know, a hostile environment. Yeah, you see so many people today where if they would just sit down with any business, whether it's a, a, a partnership, a company, people, partners leaving, or a, a marriage, you would... If you could just sit down and say, listen, rather than paying all the lawyers, let's divvy something fair. We're both not happy we're going to have to give something up. But if they would do that, uh, that certainly would be more efficient, practical for everyone involved. Tom Golisano, the founder of Paychex, uh, former owner of the Buffalo Sabres. 
Built Not Born, new book, A Self-Made Billionaire's No-Nonsense Guide for Entrepreneurs. So, Tom, tell us how the how the franchise deal worked, because I at one time was a client of Paychex when I owned some radio stations uh, here in the uh, Tampa Bay area, and I never realized that the St. Petersburg office that we dealt with probably was a franchise. Uh, initially, it was. Yes, it was. It was part of the Miami uh, situation, the Miami franchise. Uh, it's been very uh, successful down in uh, northern Florida, as well as Miami. Uh, what else would I say about it? Uh, they provide a great service there. Uh, they really did, so, and it's it's incredible today when you think about it. I would say back then you had to have a computer. There was no such thing as cloud computing, so you had to have computer rooms, computer systems in every office, correct? Uh, yes, we did. Uh, today that's not necessarily true because because of the cloud and uh, the Internet we're able to process remotely, it, and it makes us more, much more efficient, much more accurate in what we do. Uh, but you're right. Each individual office had its own computer and delivered its service on a very personal level to the clients in the area that you uh, serviced. Are you still involved uh, with Paychex? Obviously, you're still a shareholder. Uh, are you still involved on the day-to-day -day or, or the long-term uh, focus of Paychex? Oh. Paychex is a public corporation. I stepped down as CEO in 2004, but I've remained as chairman of the board uh, ever since. Uh, am I involved on a day-to-day -day basis? No, but I'll probably have a conversation with this current CEO or other officers probably once uh, every other week. Uh, we have a good working relationship. The company's got a strong board of directors, and uh, I'm proud to be associated with it. Do you miss the day-to-day -day involvement at any time? Uh, no, uh, I certainly enjoyed it while I was involved, right. but what's happened to me is I've just gotten involved in a lot of other activities. Uh, I've become a serial entrepreneur myself, uh, investing in other ventures. And, uh, as you know, I was involved in a while in politics and philanthropy keeps me uh, busy as well. Well, we'll we're going to get to all that, uh, but I found it interesting. I just looked up the revenues for paychecks, the company you founded. It was 1971, I believe? Correct. 1971, where you thought, maybe if I could get 300 accounts in Rochester, man, this would be great. Life would be good. Well, you started that 49 years ago. Today, the revenue is over $3.4 billion, which is absolutely incredible. And the interesting thing, Dave, you know that 300, that 300 clients that I want took me four years Paychex today, with its sales organization, sells almost 2,000 clients a week. That's amazing. That is absolutely incredible. And let's face it, it's a great service because filling out the manually doing paychecks and even if you have a computer program at your office and filling the tax returns, it is a royal pain. So you basically have created a service. And I remember at the time it was very reasonably priced. I'm sure it still is, where you basically took a headache off an entrepreneur or a business owner's or a company's, uh, you know, to-do list. You, you made it much easier. And that, to me, is, I think, ultimately, what every entrepreneur wants to do is find a niche, find some sort of business where people say, yep, yeah, this is great, I have to have this. And that's exactly what Paychex did. Now, one of the things you mentioned, that you are involved in some other businesses and you're a serial entrepreneur, um, I thought it was very interesting. You talk about viability on one page the number of times where i will look at 
proposals or people that will say, hey, I've got this idea, and you look at this thing, and it's a 140-page PowerPoint presentation, and ultimately I learned pretty much, and you tell me if I'm wrong, Tom, or if I'm right, but first and foremost, the thing you're investing in is the person, the entrepreneur. That's the number one. If they don't have it, if they don't have the desire, doesn't matter how great the business plan or how great their PowerPoint presentation is, it's not going to work. That's exactly right. When you look at a potential investment, there are two major factors. I think the secondary one is, does the concept make sense? Uh, can you build a product around it? Can you make an, enough uh, profit margin on it to sustain yourself? Those types of questions. But the other question is, do you have the right person in charge that's going to run the organization? And I call him the jockey or her. And there are concerns about their qualifications or their ability to get the job done, that's a really red flag, as good as the concept might be. So two very important parts. Definitely the jockey is the most important part of this thing. Yeah, and it's interesting because I'll never forget uh, when I was at student at Syracuse University, I took a, uh, a course with uh, the dean of the School of Business, School of Management, Richard Oliker. He was fantastic. The course met twice per week, 7.30 was the earliest, or 7.15 a.m., earliest class on campus. And his attitude was, in the real world of business, we don't, everything doesn't start at 8.30. you got to be prepared for the real world when sometimes you're going to get in nice and early. So it was from 7.15, and loved the class, but I'll never forget, he had two exams, a midterm and a final. And I don't know if you remember back when you were in college, they had those little uh, books that if you had to do an essay, it was like a blue cover and a, a blue back cover, and there was maybe about 12 white line pages or 14 line pages in this little this little you know book and he asked two questions on his midterm and his final and his his one stipulation was you cannot use more than one of those little books so he said i don't care if you're writing in the margins i don't care if you're writing on the cover but you're not getting more than one and what was amazing is the first time i took the exam the midterm he asked two questions and the answers were relatively simple. So my first answer, I think, was maybe 12 sentences. And the second one was maybe six. And I thought, man, this can't be right. I'm looking at all these people writing in the margins. I handed it in. And afterwards, <laughs> when he handed it back, he said, all right, for all of you that decided that you know, more is better, let me make it simple. I asked you two simple questions, and you all came back with convoluted answers, with the exception of three students. And he you know, uh, basically had us all stand up, called us out. And I remember I became friendly with him after I graduated, and he said, the problem, everybody thinks, sometimes things are so simple they have to make it complicated. And you probably see that all the time, Tom, in, in deals that you look at, and even, even businesses, when you were at Paychecks, people that would come to you with something that should be simple they turn it into a convoluted mess. Well, we probably get two to three business plans a week, and almost every one of them has a little bit of this problem with, with them. People will put in volumes of information where I believe one, the most important page is what's the revenue going to be, what are your expenses, what's going to be the profit, and how long will it take you to get there based on sales activity. To me, that's the most important thing. In the case of paychecks, it was easy for me. I knew each client, let's say, brought in $20 a pay period in revenue, and our overhead was 1000 Well, you need 50 clients to break even. 
And if you, if you sell one a week, you can say, well, it takes me 50 weeks to get those 50 clients. I can figure out how much money I'm going to lose each week, add it up, and that's my capital expense. It's a pretty easy formula. But so many times you don't see that in these business plans. And the other thing that, that is sort of irritating to me, and but I see it so often, is people come in with these ideas that they say a market is uh, – you know, some large number, and they're going to get 10% of that market in a very short period of time. Well, Paychecks, who I consider to be a fairly successful company, uh, has been in the payroll processing business going on 48 years now, and we only have 7% of the market. I mean, it's a huge market, and when people come in and say they're going to get 5 or 10% of the market in a year or two, uh-uh, it just doesn't happen. And, of course, you all, you all probably realize, too, the biggest mistake I think entrepreneurs make is they always overestimate their ability to sell their product or service. They think just because they put up their shingle or put up their sign that the world is going to come to them, they, you know, it just doesn't happen that way. You've got to go out and you've got to create that market. You've got to sell. Uh, you've got to create an environment of uh, growth and uh, adding customers. But as an entrepreneur, Tom, I've got to believe that you probably say to yourself, boy, we've got seven. Okay, let's see if we can get to 10. Then you know what? Let's see if we can get to 15. Come on, every entrepreneur wants to get ultimately to 100. Well, you know, you just answered one of your questions from earlier. Uh, what happened to paychecks, and I think happens to a lot of companies that are successful, it comes in plateaus. Uh, when I uh, consolidated they consolidated the group of franchisees and partners and myself, we had about 20,000 clients. Well, our next site is what are we going to do? How, are we gonna, how long is it going to take us to get to 50,000 clients? And then 100,000, and then 200,000. And that's how, and now today we have 670,000 clients that we do payroll and HR services. And then came along the concepts for the additional human resource services that we offer, like 401k processing and uh, workers' compensation insurance, and so forth. With those additional products, we have such a, a, a benefit, such a uh, advantage, because we do the payroll, and it's all electronic, and we can provide services that are highly accurate and highly cost-efficient uh, to our clients in the HR area. So we started building on that, and that's how an organization grows. I think anybody starts a business and say, I, you know, I'm going to be a billion-dollar company. Uh, just never going to happen or seldom going to happen. No, and, and as to I said, grow into it. Yeah, and I think when you look at Steve Jobs working out of his garage with Steve Wozniak, those guys were just saying, hey, if we could sell maybe like 10 of these computers, we'll make a little money and, you know, we can move out of the garage. Nobody realized that two guys working in a garage would create a worldwide company that is just synonymous with technology and the number of people that either use one of their products uh, is just is in the billions across the globe. But nobody starts that way. It just it, it, it happens, and you can't necessarily plan it. That, that's something you can never put in a business plan. It's just going to happen, and if it does, great. But with paychecks, like you said, you were just looking for 300 and it just kept growing and growing. Tom, you're at heart, I can tell you're a salesman really ultimately at heart. Do you think there are too many businesses today that are run by financial people that either don't have passion for the business 
or don't see the importance of sales, if you don't have revenue coming in, that's the lifeblood. You're dead no matter how great of a finance person you are. Uh, I agree completely. Uh, you've heard the expression, I'm sure, nothing happens till a salesperson takes an order. That's right. That's very, very important. Uh, one of the biggest failures I see with entrepreneurs is they always overestimate their ability to sell their product or service. And when that happens, it means their revenue isn't what it needs to be. And that creates what they call a cash flow problem. Well, they'll go to a bank or they'll go to an investor and say, we're doing okay, but we have a cash flow problem. No, they have a sales problem. And the sales, lack of sales is what's caused the, the cash flow issue. So sales and sales management is such an important part of any organization, even a retail organization. Uh, and it's the foundation. So do I have a tendency to like salespeople and sales managers? Yeah. And I look for successful ones all the time. You've always got to sell. Nothing happens, as you said, without uh, selling it and taking the order and bringing in that revenue. We will continue our fascinating conversation with Tom Golisano, author of the book Built, Not Born, A Self-Made Billionaire's No-Nonsense Guide for Entrepreneurs. He founded Paychex, owned the Buffalo Sabres of the National Hockey League, and uh, noted philanthropist as well, and just a regular guy from Rochester, New York, and didn't start with a billion. And really, when 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 I, I think about Tom Golisano, or you think about Steve Jobs, or you think about uh, some of the other entrepreneurs, uh, Bill Gates, they basically start, nobody sits there and says, I'm going to become a billionaire, like Bernard Sanders says. I'm going to become a billionaire. I'm going to sit down in my garage, I'm going to write some software, I'm going to make a little computer, and I'm going to become a billionaire. Nobody knows that. You just figure, hey, maybe I can make a product and make some money on it. You just don't know. You can't predict that. You can't put that in a in a business plan. So when I hear Bernard Sanders, you know, notice how no, he no longer goes after millionaires because he is a billionaire now. He's got three houses, including a summer camp in Vermont. Who's got a summer camp? He got a summer house. He's got a summer camp. Uh, what is it? Cap socialist? But he doesn't go after millionaires, just billionaires. But it's ridiculous because people do not start a business thinking, man, I've got my business plan by year 10. I'm going to be a billionaire doesn't happen that way and obviously they had a service or have a product that people want nobody forces anybody to buy an iphone nobody forces anybody to use paychecks they're providing a product or service that people want so when bernard sanders goes after him forget about it never miss a minute of the show when you download the cigar dave mobile app for apple android and kindle devices you can listen to our 24 7 continuous stream of the latest show or download the recent podcasts to listen to anytime on your mobile device get the cigar dave mobile app in the app store search cigar dave In 1964, Jose O. Padron began rolling cigars bearing his name in modest surroundings with one guiding principle, always focus on quality, never on quantity. 
Nearly 40 years later, Padron cigars are recognized for their superior taste and majestic construction. The result of Padron controlling all aspects of the cigar-making process, including planting their own seeds, growing and curing their own tobacco, and constantly supervising the rolling room. To Wall Street, it is called vertical integration. To the Padron family, it's called making great cigars. The Padron lines include the Padron 1964 Anniversary Series and the Padron Traditional line. All Padron cigars are wrapped in Nicaraguan sun-grown Habano tobacco, available in natural or maduro. Experience Padron. For your Padron retailer, call 1-800-453-5635. When Padron is on the band, quality is a matter of family honor. Surgeon General Warning. Tobacco use increases the risk of infertility, stillbirth, and low birth weight. Got a few more minutes left with Tom Golisano, founder of Paychex, former owner of the Buffalo Sabres, philanthropist, author of the new book, Built Not Born, a self-made billionaire's no-nonsense guide for entrepreneurs. And Tom, we've got our listeners, our alphas, they're entrepreneurs, they're professionals, they love cigars, they love enjoying the good life, but they also believe in working hard, and they also believe in philanthropy. And I will say this, that you go to any event where there are cigar connoisseurs involved, whether it's a golf tournament or a charity auction, they are the first to dig into their pockets and say, you know what? Happy to uh, to write the check. And you have been the perfect example of that, not only in your native Rochester, but also in uh, Naples, where you now reside, between the Galasano Children's Museum that is named after you, and you've been very active on the philanthropy front with numerous hospitals. I'd like you to go through that because when you make it, you, in the book, talk about the importance of giving back to the community, the people that helped make you successful. Yes, philanthropy uh, is a very important part of our life right now. Uh, and as you've mentioned, we've been involved in a lot of in several hospitals and college institutions, uh, the Special Olympics. Uh, I have a son who's developmentally disabled. And because of that, it was one of the driving forces of me trying to be successful as an as a entrepreneur because I never wanted him to become a ward of the state in any way. So we've made uh, sort of a specialty out of the uh, organizations that serve people with developmental disabilities. But I can tell you one thing about philanthropy. It's not as easy as it looks. You would think giving away money is, you know, yeah, that's, that's, that's easy. It's not so easy if you want to do a good job. Uh, you almost have to do a lot of due diligence. An organization comes to you asking for a significant amount of money, like 5 or $10 million. Uh, you've got to go through a process of determining whether that's a good investment. Uh, the quality of the management, the quality of the project, their ability to get the project done, etc. So it's, it, it's not as easy as it looks, but I'll tell you it's very gratifying. You know, I do have involvement with three children's hospitals, and every week that goes by, 
I get a, a parent or a grandparent, a sister or a brother come to me and say, oh, our child was taken such good care of at the hospital. He's pulled through. He's doing well or she's doing well. I can't thank you enough. Well, that's very gratifying to hear. Uh, I'm a little guilty of enjoying it a little too much because I know the people that really do the job are the doctors and the nurses. I just help build the building. Uh, they're the ones that actually make it happen. But it is very gratifying, and I'm glad I'm in a position to do it. Yeah, as my grandmother always say, health is wealth. And I'm sure when you hear those stories that you're able to uh, help other people that are in need, that, that's got to be uh, incredibly gratifying and uh, clearly with the, the philanthropic uh, uh, endeavors you've been involved with. Uh, I know I've been to the Galisano Children's Museum, and I've seen it, so that's uh, really an amazing, uh, you know, an amazing place as well. And, and it's interesting because in the, you're two really adopted. Well, Rochester, your native hometown, but Naples, your adopted hometown. You've also given back, even though uh, you haven't been there as long as being in your native Rochester. Yeah, uh, Naples, is, Naples, Florida is a great, great place to live. It's uh, very culturally oriented. The people are very, very generous. Uh, it's just a good quality of living. So I'm very happy to be able to be a contributor to it. All right, two other things I want to get to real quickly. Uh, one, politics. You ran for governor three times in New York State. And if anybody needs a business person, any state needs a business person in the worst way, it is New York State. I reside in Florida as well, up in the cigar city of Tampa. Tampa's, uh, Florida's population, just about, I think a little bit bigger now than New York State's, but our state budget is half the size of New York State. What is wrong yeah, with New York State? somebody else besides me that recognizes that. Florida <laughs> has two and a half million more people. Its budget is about $88 billion this year, and New York State's budget's about $180. You're absolutely right. It's double in New York State. And they, there's less people in New York State. Isn't that sort of outrageous? Yeah, and what's amazing is in New York State, there's all these. Com there's a throughway commission. There's a bridge commission. There's a power commission. There's all these authorities and commissions. We don't have that in Florida, and yet everything seems to work rather well here in Florida. It really is incredible. And it's a very interesting correlation between the two states. And obviously... Uh, I was reading an article this morning's uh, Buffalo News about the census is going to show people leaving New York State and going to places like Florida and Tennessee and Texas and so forth. It's, uh, it's a problem that I think has been brewing for a long time in New York State, and it's starting to catch up with us. Yeah, and, and did you, do you regret spending your money to run three times? Is it something that you look back on and say, eh, maybe it was I wanted to do it at the time, but glad it didn't happen? Or I believe you would have made a, a dramatic impact, uh, certainly having a business person that believes in watching taxpayers' dollars. Well, the first two times I ran, it was more or less to establish the Independence Party. You had to get a certain number of votes to keep uh, ballot access available to our group. And I was glad to do that. The third time I ran, I was really wanted to win. And uh, I put a lot of effort into it and a lot of money and time. Uh, I never regretted it. Uh, the process is very interesting. It's in some cases enjoyable, sometimes very frustrating. Uh, dealing with the media sometimes can be a real issue, especially when you have people that are trying to undermine you uh, all, right. all the time. Uh, but I, I made one conclusion. 
there's a real difference between politics and being in business. And let me tell you what I mean. In politics, you only have one winner in a race. In business, you can be in an industry where there are a lot of people that are active in it, and you all can be successful. Because of this one winner only mentality, I think politicians will go to absurd, absurd methods to get elected. I mean, if you, I don't know if you watched the debate last night, but I mean, there's people screaming at each other and yelling. What a disaster. What a disaster. (laughs) Uh, It's just because there's only one winner. I like business because you can have multiple winners and you can have a nice uh, competitive atmosphere between the parties, whereas in politics, it's just so negative. Entrepreneur, sports team owner, philanthropist. That is Tom Golisano and now noted book author. A best-selling book just released, Built Not Born, A Self-Made Billionaire's No-Nonsense Guide for Entrepreneurs. We will continue our fascinating conversation with Tom around the corner. Never miss a minute of the show when you download the Cigar Dave mobile app for Apple, Android, and Kindle devices. You can listen to our 24-7 continuous stream of the latest show or download the recent podcasts to listen to anytime on your mobile device. Get the Cigar Dave mobile app in the App Store. Search Cigar Dave. Hi, this is Rocky Patel. I'm here with my brother Nish and my cousin Nimish, and we're talking cigars. Guess what? They want me to vote on what my favorite cigar is. It's tough, but I'm going to go with the Decade. I love it. It's rich, decadent, and smooth. Rocky, you know what? The Decade's a great cigar, but the 15th anniversary, that's the cigar. That celebrated your 15 years in business, and I got to tell you, it's my favorite. You know what, Nish and Rocky, you both are wrong. The best cigar is Freedom by Rocky Patel. This cigar delivers a lot of spice, a lot of flavor, and in my opinion, it's the best cigar we make. As usual, we can't agree. But guess what? There's a great cigar for everyone. I promise you, nobody works harder than we do to make you a great quality cigar. Come visit us at RockyPatel.com. Surgeon General Warning. Cigars are not a safe alternative to cigarettes. The Cigar Dave Officers Club has been en fuego on fire with marvelous selections. And we continue that trend for February. We feature a full-flavored selection of Crowned Head's unique artisanal quality cigars. First up, the Jericho Hill, dedicated to the man in black. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. Jericho Hill, the first Nicaraguan cigar from Crown Heads. It's wrapped in a Mexican San Andrean Maduro wrapper. Rich, dark, delivers medium to full-flavored attitude. Then we feature the La Imperiosa. Buckle up. It's a seriously full-flavored beauty. Ecuadorian Habano Oscuro wrapper ignites massive notes of pepper. And then we wrap it up with Juarez, inspired by Jericho Hill. But Juarez amps up the strength, delivering notes of spice and sweetness. $22.95 $22.95 per month. You get three great cigars like the Crown Heads full-flavored sampler. Go to CigarDave.com, click on Officers Club, and join the Officers Club today.
Patriotically made in the USA, America's alpha male-in-chief, Cigar Dave. We'll rejoin our interview with Tom Golisano, founder of Paychex, owner of the Buffalo Sabres, former owner of the Buffalo Sabres, philanthropist, author of the new book, Built Not Born, A Self-Made Billionaires. Let me do it in Bernie Sanders style. Built Not Born, A Self-Made Billionaires, No Nonsense Guide for Entrepreneurs. I'm a billionaire myself. Uh, when I wrote a book, I don't know what the book was about, but my wife Jade said it was a good book, made me a billionaire, so I don't go after billionaires anymore. I just go after billionaires, trillionaires, and gazillionaires. And I do so from my summer cap in Vermont. Ah, <laughs> uh, Bernie Sanders. Uh, talking about Made in America, we have the rejoin liner, Proudly Made in America. We need to start proudly making our pharmaceuticals and other health-related important items here in the United States. National security issue. Talked about it in the opening monologue. It is beyond repulsive, beyond shameful, that we don't manufacture drugs here in the United States. We do some, but 80% of the raw materials come from China. Would you trust, would you, let me, let me ask you this question. You hear about that market that sells rats and bats and pigs and cats and dogs. And by the way, in many Chinese restaurants, they do slaughter cats and dogs because there was a note that came out from the Chinese government telling restaurants to avoid slaughtering and cooking and eating cats and dogs. There are dirty people. If you look at many of China, I'm not everybody, but much of China is still rural and backwards. Look at the nonsense they're eating. That open market is, is busy every day eating all sorts of wild vermin and animals. So many of the Chinese people, even though many have come out of poverty, many are still eating items that are just should not be on a menu, period. But we need to start making things back here in the United States. I'm just fed up, absolutely fed up, that we have abdicated our pharmaceutical manufacturing and other key manufacturing to China. The Chinese commie bastards are not our friends. They are our enemies. Proof? They suppressed what happened with coronavirus. If they were the world's friend, they would have been honest about it and said, we're going to contain it. We want the world to know. We don't want this to spread. Did they do that? The answer is a resounding, absolute, loud no. Yet. Tom Golisano, the author of the brand new book, Built Not Born, a self-made billionaire's no-nonsense guide for entrepreneurs, founded Paychecks, philanthropist, ran for governor of New York State three times, founded the Independence Party there. And lastly, Tom, I cannot finish this interview without talking about the Buffalo Sabres. Growing up in Buffalo, huge Sabres fan, still am. And the Buffalo Sabres for many, many years, I mean, they were really... Just a great team, the French connection, a lot of history, always well supported by the fans in Western New York. And you're a sports fan, but not necessarily a hockey fan. And I know that yeah, uh, when mutual... I got involved with the Buffalo Sabres, I had seen three NHL games in my life. Uh, I wasn't what you'd call a fan. And, uh, but understanding the problem with the Buffalo Sabres having gone through bankruptcy in Buffalo and the danger of them potentially leaving the area... I got involved. Uh, Our mutual friend Larry Quinn must have done a great sales job on you because, again, only seeing three hockey games, but 
Tell us the process because it didn't happen when he said, Tom, you should buy this team. It really was – there's some time that went by before you finally said, maybe I'll do this. Yeah. Uh, well, I got together with Larry Quinn and Dan DePofi. They were introduced to me, and having much experience in the field, it was a good match. But when they showed me the cash flow and the, and the profit projections, I said, who wants to own this thing? Uh, and I could see why it went bankrupt. We only had about 5,000 season ticket holders at the time. Uh, but I sat on the idea. I began to realize how important it was to the city of Buffalo, the metropolitan area, uh, not to lose this team. And I said, what the heck, let's give it a try. And Larry and Dan, through their leadership and my help, uh, and we turned the whole thing around. Uh, we went in one year and a half, we went from 5,000 season ticket holders to 15,000 season ticket holders in a year and a half and a waiting list. Now, Winning games was the key thing, but we also did some things for the fans. We, you know, new new scoreboard, new ribbon boards. We put into a program of pricing where it depended on the, uh, uh, the importance of the game. In other words, when we played Montreal and Toronto, I guess our prices were higher. And when we play a team like Atlanta or Tampa, they would be lower, so families could enjoy the. The, the, the game as well as uh, the other fans. So we did a lot of great things, and we turned the thing completely around uh, where it became a profitable organization. Uh, then um, Larry developed some heart issues, uh, and his health was, was a question. And I know because of self-inflicted pressure, you know, he still wanted to work hard and so forth. I became a little concerned for him. Terry Pagula came along and said he'd be interested in buying the team, and uh, we gave him a price, and Terry said, okay, and we sold the team. Now, I'm happy as heck because Terry Pagula is going to guarantee that team is going to be there forever, at least forever for the time he's around. So we accomplished something very, very important, and we transferred over something to him that was in much better shape than when we got it. Well, I know that the Buffalo Sabres, the National Hockey League, did not want the Sabres to leave because of the great fan support over many years, but there was a possibility that it could have. So by Larry convincing you and you coming in, not being a big hockey fan, but my understanding was from what Larry told me, after, uh, after eight years of owning the team, you kind of became a pretty, uh, pretty diehard hockey fan. I do watch all the Sabre games on TV uh, when I can, for sure. And uh, I know well, a lot more about the game now than I did that. Right, <laughs> absolutely. One last thing, what, you talk about... Like a, what a, icing is. <laughs> where, exactly. Well, I remember when, when uh, the Tampa Bay Lightning first started here in Tampa, uh, I was at the very first game, uh, new Phil Esposito, and at the time I had uh, some radio stations and we had carried an exhibition game and we had, we had signed up to carry the Lightning game, so obviously I was in attendance at many of the games, and at the first game, I'll never forget, the fans in Tampa were new to hockey. Whenever there was an offsides or an icing, people started applauding. They thought it was a good thing. They had no clue, but now Tampa's <laughs> become a really tremendous uh, hockey town. And it's great to see because it really is a great sport. And when you see it in person, there's really nothing like it. But lastly, I want to bring up something that you bring up, a negotiating tactic or something that can be used whenever you're questioning people, the pregnant pause. And actually, you use that with uh, Larry Quinn and the other members of the Buffalo Sabres during a little retreat down to your home in Naples. So let's talk about the pregnant pause and then kind of that little quick story about how you used it with the uh, management of the Buffalo Sabres. 
Sure. The pregnant pause, I don't know where the name came from. I don't know if I coined it or somebody used it uh, with me in the room. But anyway, it's called the pregnant pause. And basically what it is, when you're interviewing somebody or negotiating with somebody or making a sales presentation, you get to a point where it's time for you, the presenter, to shut up and give the uh, person on the other end of the table a chance to speak. And the main reason is so you can find out what they're thinking. Well, we had a problem with uh, one of our contracts of a player we traded for. Uh, in the contract, it called for a $250,000 bonus uh, for a player if he got traded to the Sabres and played so many games, he would get that bonus and we would be responsible for it. Well, the people that negotiated the contract for us didn't realize that clause was in the contract. We ended up playing the the young man enough so that he earned the bonus. Well, we didn't intend to keep the player very long, so we felt it was really a mistake we made that cost the company, the organization, a lot of money. And the general manager of hockey, uh, his name was Darcy Bashir, had the overall responsibility for managing these contracts. So I brought Larry and Dan and, and Darcy down to my house in Florida, and we sat in a little room, and I brought up this problem. And uh, I just sat there. And the four of us were at a little card table, a room about 10 by 10, for 45 minutes, and nobody said a word. Now, if you could imagine the tension building up in that room, but nobody willing to say anything. Finally, Darcy Regier, who was mainly responsible for the air, says to me, Tom, if you want me to pay for it, I'll pay for it. And I said, Darcy, forget about it water over the dam, let's move on. I just wanted, you know, uh, selfishly, him to admit that it was a mistake and that he was willing to stand by it. And it showed me the true character of the person, which was very positive. Yeah, I and mean, that for him, that, that's incredible for him to volunteer and say, because you could have said, yeah, Darcy, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dock your pay out of that. Not that you would, but for somebody to do that, I think does reveal character. By the way, Darcy's a fellow cigar connoisseur as well. Big, big, big cigar fan uh, also. Oh, I didn't know that. That's great. Yep, absolutely. Big, big listener of my show up in Buffalo on WBEN when he resided in Buffalo and uh, absolutely loves cigars as well. And Tom, lastly in the book, the final sentence that you have in here, which I think is very important because no matter all the hard work, uh, everything that you do, the toil, the sweat, the last sentence in your book, if I can pass on one more piece of sage wisdom, and I quote, don't forget to have fun, exclamation point. I agree 100%. I don't know who wrote that, but I agree with it. <laughs> you wrote it. It's in your book. You said, don't yeah, forget to have fun, but but you're, you're absolutely. And, Tom, I'll tell you what, I would love if you, when I get down to Naples, because I visit Rocky Patel often, we definitely have to have a cigar together. And if you would like, the Padrones are very good friends of mine. If you would like to meet them down in Miami, uh, have some special cigars that aren't available to anybody, uh, I will arrange that and meet you down there, and we'll have some cigars, and uh, we can talk more about the book and some other great experiences. Because, really, when you're having a cigar with someone, and you can interact and have a conversation, that's all about having fun. Yeah, I agree 100%. When you get down here, give me a call. We'll get together. We'll do it. Tom Golisano, founder of Paychecks, philanthropist, owned the Buffalo Sabres, turned them around, and author of a great book, Alphas. I'm telling you, you've got to buy this book. I read it in two nights. It was a just a conversational read. Built, Not Born, a Self-Made Billionaire's No-Nonsense Guide for Entrepreneurs. Trust me, you'll love it. 
and you will enjoy it. I certainly enjoyed my conversation with Tom Golisano, the founder of Paychex, former owner of the Buffalo Sabres, philanthropist, author of the new book, Built Not Born, a self-made billionaire's no-nonsense guide for entrepreneurs. I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Many of you are entrepreneurs, business owners, professionals, investors, potential entrepreneurs, business owners. So I hope you found that fascinating. And I certainly hope that you found what I had to say about China being our enemy to be candid, truthful, and the right way to deal with our enemy, China. Cigar Day, the general saying, Mayor Humidor, always be full. Mayor Cutter, always be sharp. Mayor Ashby, extra, extra long. Semper Delicatio, always pleasure. Long live the alpha. Make America great again. Make masculinity great again. Screw the enemies of pleasure and screw the Chinese commie bastards.